Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. And over the last 12 years, I've made a real concerted effort to track down cats who were on the bandstand long before I was ever born in all different parts of the country. And uh, I really had a beautiful connection, I don't know, maybe nine, ten years ago. I had the uh, really the great honor of interviewing one of the baddest cats in the world, a guy named Russell Smith, uh, who just really blew my mind open about the regional sounds that were coming out of, you know, the southeastern part of the United States with Randy's record shop and all different types of, you know, upholstered sewers that these cats would play and road dog it all over the place. It ultimately came out with a band called the Amazing Rhythm Aces, which has just been uh, such a uh, pivotal, pivotal band for me uh, in my movement, being able to blend all different styles of music into uh, their bag. And I get a chance today to speak to a guy who really added so much color and texture to that band and so many other groups with a swirling Hammond organ and uh, really uh, connected with him on Facebook and now get a chance to uh, to hang with him on the on the show. Billy Earhart, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake, thanks, man. I appreciate you letting me be part of this. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. You know, I, it's an honor, man. Um, I, I just, I, I, I have to ask you, I mean, the first time, do you remember the first time that the Hammond organ in your, in your memory was was brought in from the church to the the nightclub. I know you were born in '54, but in the late '60s, that was really happening. Where you know you had that that Hammond organ moving into the to the nightclub, and I just kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about if that was the first time you got behind the the organ. You know, I started off uh, playing piano. Uh, when I was about eight years old, just little stuff that a piano teacher was trying to teach me, and that wasn't what I wanted to play. So <laughs> I told my mom, I said, I, I'm just going to learn songs off the little 45s I buy, and just get in a band. And uh, so I got a combo organ, a little Farfisa. And uh, had that for a few years, and then got a, a, a Hammond M2, a little bit smaller, more of a, a spinet organ. But uh, actually, it was uh, uh, very similar to a B3 in the tone. Uh, then I went up a step. Uh, see, that was in... Uh, like about 67, 68 maybe. Then about 71, I got a uh, a big Hammond C3, which is like a B3 that's a church model. Oh, it's got man. no four legs. It's got sides, you know. Right, right. But it's just exactly like a B3, only it's got sides instead of four legs. And... Uh, I got a 59 model and a couple of Leslie's and I got uh, really turned on to it. Uh, 
I'm going to say about 61 or 62. So you were, I mean, you were just a little boy at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 it was Booker T and the MGs. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Well, I, 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 I wanted, that's what I wanted to, first of all, I needed to get this on the record with you, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of cats. They, um, you know, they play left hand bass uh, with the B three. Did you actually, uh, when you got the the C three model, were you were you playing like organ drum duos and kicking pedals? No, no. Uh, it's fine. Most cats don't. I mean, there's there's. I've got the pedals. Yeah. I've still got my organ and. Leslie and pedals and everything, but uh, I always work with a, a great bass player, Jeff Stick Davis. With a dude, that dude, that is he still with us or has he left this planet? He's uh, he's still around. He's just south of Tampa, playing around down there. Dude, he is the. I, you guys were cooking. Talk to me about Stick Davis, dude. That dude. You always cook the groove, but you didn't need to extension. You didn't need any bass lines. He was taking care of it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I really wasn't that proficient at playing uh, bass with my feet. I mean, I, I could do it a little bit, but not anything like him. He's just world-class bass player, man. But uh, we did uh, the aces for years and years and then also got a chance to uh, do a bunch of tours all over Europe with blues artists from Nashville. Uh, my friend Fred James, a record producer, got Bluesland Productions and he was cutting records on a whole bunch of Nashville blues artists that were on Excello Records. Wow. A bunch of stuff around uh, in the 60s. And he rejuvenated their career. We cut albums on them and then went to uh, Europe and played uh, big festivals over there. Lucerne, Switzerland, and Holland, and Austria, and France, and England, and um, so and who were who were some of the who were some of the cats that he rejuvenated? Uh, Johnny Jones. Wow. Johnny played guitar uh, on the TV show The Beat, nineteen sixty six. There was a blues R and B TV show. Uh, and they only lasted one year, nineteen sixty six, but. They had, you know, like Freddie King and uh, a bunch of different blues artists on there. Gabe Mouth Brown. Oh, yeah. Johnny Jones was in the house band. And then he got a gig with Bobby Blue Bland and uh, did that for a while. And then um, another another one was... uh, we did about 20 different ones, maybe more. Um, Charles Wig Walker 
and he was making soul and blues records back in the late fifties and had a had a couple little singles that did good. Wow. And I don't Dude, do you're blowing my mind away. I mean, so you're okay, continue. So these cats were coming up like at least that one you just mentioned, the wig wig, uh he was coming up around that sort of Hank Ballard and the Midnighters R and B time. Yeah, it was uh late fifties and uh he he had several different record deals. He moved to New York. He was in Nashville for a while. He's from Nashville. Um I did about five albums with him and we did the Lucerne Festival two or three times in Switzerland. Uh and Jeff Stick Davis played on all that too. Oh my gosh. Uh, he also played with B.B. King and uh, Jesse Winchester, and um, me and him played with Memphis Slim, uh, went out on tour with him, oh, and, uh, this is un- Rufus Thomas, and... Uh, Would you say that, like, these cats, uh, these were Nashville blues players? Some of the ones I just mentioned were. Some of them were from Memphis. We moved to Memphis in the early 70s, 73, and started recording amazing rhythm aces stuff. We had about, uh, we had, had about 25 nice tracks. And uh, Sam Phillips' son, Knox, got us a record deal. They wanted twelve of them, so we've we've still got we've got a couple of albums in the can. <laughs> we, had, we had several extra wow. tracks left over that didn't go actually go on the record, but we did like twenty five albums over a forty year span. And I didn't know you talked to Russell, but you know he did. Uh, he kind of stopped wanted to do the Amazing Rhythm Aces because he got a chance to make big money on a solo record deal. He got about 50 grand and so it's all of a sudden, well, I'm not going to be on going on tour. I'm going to be writing songs for a publishing company in Nashville. So that's when me and Stick, uh, we got a gig with Al Green and toured with him for a year and a half. Uh, uh, you know, um, Billy, I want I got to, I got to ask you, I mean, I, at 44, uh, can you talk about the popularity of, were the, the, not Al Green, clearly Al Green, high records and, uh, you know, the guy was, uh, you know, obviously an international star, but some of these unsung cats, were they well known in Europe? Did you have... Was that music consumed, the commerce consumed in Europe, as opposed to similar to the jazz musicians here in the States as well, where they, you know, they were much more popular in Japan and Europe than in the States? Yes, they they were. They have a whole lot of people that, that they just love, that uh, late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s, R&B stuff from Excello and... Um, 
they they were more popular over there because they uh, they just have a an appreciation more for blues and soul and R and B. Not really a color bar over there either, right? I mean, it's they don't. I mean, there is racism, but it's not. Part of it's just they. I, I remember talking to John Mayall and the blues guitar player, and you know, he just was talking about in England, there just wasn't a color bar, and he in the states that's always been the case, you know, in some way, shape, or form. And I know that you were, <clears throat> you know, somebody who was infatuated, and you, probably a lot of your heroes were people of color. So it's just always oh, yeah, most of all of them, right? You know, and I just feel like you guys were stick <clears throat> Russell before he got the big dollars, but just, I, I, I gravitate to you guys because you didn't, you weren't hypocritical. You didn't turn your back on the people that got you, that basically inspired you to become musicians in the first place. Yeah, we had a real appreciation for the old school kind of stuff. And when we got together in 73, it was, it was a year a year and a half before we got our album out, our first third rate romance was our first single. It, it went almost, I think it got to number 11 in the nation mm. and uh, on the pop chart. And it did real good on the top 10 on the country chart, I think. But number one in Canada. It just, you know, they still play it on Mississippi all the time where I live. But I got to be honest. I mean, that's that's the most popular track, but there are a couple of tracks on there, man. Bring me to tears, dude. I, I did. Were there other radio friendly hits from that album? Uh, yeah, we had. Uh, we also had a top ten record called Amazing Grace. Used to be her favorite song. It was kind of. Uh, uh, Russell wrote it for Jerry Lee. It was kind of uh, right. quasi-gospel, country-flavored thing with a steel guitar. And, uh, we didn't really want to be a country band. We were more into maybe soul country or blues country or something. Oh, I love it so much. But, exactly. Uh, yeah, we were like... Uh, you know, I mean, back then, when when we got we we got uh, a Grammy award in '76 and uh, some CMA stuff, but it was they didn't even have bands. It was like Oak Ridge Boys, a quartet, the Statler Brothers. That was who was up for the group of the the year. They were all like quartets and stuff like that. There there wasn't hardly any country bands. Uh, You know, like uh, uh, Pure Prairie League, they were kind of in uh, the same kind of thing, but they they weren't in Nashville in the... in the charts there, you know. Totally. Uh, I love, you know, I love where you're... Because they were... Also, like a similar, really good chops. I mean, would you say that, like, let's just talk about this. Like, it's very, it's not really a fine line, but like country bands, uh, to me, um, a lot of just very much 
play, playing in 4-4 time, a lot of just sort of formula trip kind of tunes. I'm wondering when you talk about country soul, because there's a lot of grease in the Amazing Rhythm Aces. You guys bring a lot of grease, you and Stick. I mean, would you guys, were there certain songs that would lend themselves to leaving the head of the tune and stretching out? I'm not saying you were a jam band. I'm just saying, did you improvise more than a traditional country band? Oh, yeah, yeah. We had, uh, it was mainly after the, uh, on the fifth album we did in Muscle Shoals, and uh, we had the Muscle Shoals horns playing on uh, several tracks, and we cut Love and Happiness, the Al Green song, and there was uh, a lot of jamming going on and that. Everybody took so low. And, but uh, not a whole lot of jamming going on. When you when you, when that when the when the stack deck came out that first album I mean uh, when you were on tour did you guys feel I don't want to say compelled to play the songs the way they were exactly on the record or I'm just you know part of me feels like you know you, there was you know you had the Marshall Tucker band and you had other bands that then maybe there'd be one or two tunes I just love cats that are they had they they play beyond what they know of course then maybe you're alienating the audience. But I just wonder, like, early on, not by the fifth, not in the studio, but, like, live, early on after that first record when you were touring, like, Road Dogs, were there any tunes that actually lent themselves to, you know, you take a solo, you know, whatever? I mean, was there anything like that? Not a whole lot of jamming situations on that first little tour. Big. Uh, Actually... We were trying to play them as close to the record as we could, and uh, we had uh, two keyboard players, James Hooker, that's an incredible player. Uh, dude, Hooker, and I see. I you know, I'm sorry. I just was like, you came before Hooker in the band, though. Uh, yeah, I, me and Stick and the drummer Butch and Russell came to Memphis to record and uh, we ended up getting James and our producer engineer Bird to play guitar he played a lot of the mandolin and acoustic guitar and steel and dobro and he was a very versatile guy uh, he did it about three years and then he split uh, Would you t- I want you to talk to the audience, especially younger cats, about uh, you and Hooker. Uh, I mean, Miles would have Miles Davis had at one point Keith Jarrett on Vox organ, Chick Corea on electric piano, uh, and I just think in your context, I would love you to talk. You know, you and Hooker were pros, pros, pros already at that point. Still young. How do you learn to stay out of each other's way? And how would you sort of play off of each other? Because too much language can get kind of messy, but... Uh, Absolutely. You know yeah, what I'm saying? We just kind of laid... Both of us kind of laid back on most of the things, and depending on the arrangement, you know, might be more of a guitar-influenced 
thing, and I might play electric piano, and I played piano on Third Rate Romance. James wasn't even on the record, and a couple more he wasn't on. Amazing Grace, that was a, a hit. But uh, Amazing Grace was a hit too. I'm looking here. I'm trying to find. Um, it's either Emma Jean or Emma Jean, gee, something on. about so. I mean, it's just. My my daughters and I we listen. It's just the most beautiful album. I mean, it just sounds like you guys were almost it, it, trying to pinch yourselves. It was almost too good to be true, you know, I, just to be able to make a record, have all these tunes, and then be able to present them to people. You guys sounded really happy at that time. We were happy because we hadn't been working too much for a year and a half because we were sneaking in the studio and bird was uh he was the studio manager so when they didn't have anything going on we could sneak in there and try to cut tracks you know that's what i was saying we had about 25 for that first album and they they used 12 of them but so we've got 12 or 13 just sitting there did you did you have a chance Go ahead, continue. I'd love to get a little record deal, like, uh, or some kind of box set thing that's got all the tracks that never were released. So out of out of that out of that bushel of tunes, some of those stayed in the can, never made it onto the re- the next record or any other records. Yeah, there's a bu- there's about thirteen of them that. I think, or maybe ten. Oh, that's got to happen. We got to get, we got to, we got to make a project out of that, my man. That that is yeah, unbelievable. I'm trying to do that. I, I've got one just just came out last year. It was a live show we did in Germany, and uh, when Russell Smith died, the German folks that that. Uh, had the nightclub, they hired an entire live studio rig to bring it in to record our show to do a radio simulcast. And they, he contacted me and was telling me how sorry he was about Russell dying and were we gonna continue? And I said, no. We can't do it after Russell's gone. He wrote too many of them. Everybody wrote a little bit, but he wrote the majority of them. Right. We're just not going to try to get somebody to replace him. And but uh, so anyway, these these Germans said oh, we want to put this record out. It was it was simulcast on the radio? in 2000 so it was 23 years ago and it just was bootlegged all over europe wow because it was on the radio people were making cassettes of it totally and uh he said we know it's been out and been all over just from uh aces fans and collectors collecting cassettes or whatever but we want to do a nice double cd on it and i said well let's do it let's go ahead and do it 
and uh, whatever money we get, I'm going to uh, give Russell Smith's sons his share. He's got two boys, and me and Stick took a share. James had left the band. He played with Nancy Griffith for about 20 years, and he was gone doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Hooker, I know you played with Al, if I met, I, I, I'm going to send you the, the Russell Smith interview because it, it was one of the most profound interviews that I've done 1800. It was one of my favorites. And I thought, I thought he was talking about Hooker being in the, uh, in the high, high studios, high records studios with Al Green. Yeah, he, uh, he cut a bunch he used to tour with Al Green before me and Stick got to Al Green. Oh, um, that's what I—that's what he said. That's unbelievable. And uh, he played on a bunch of his records and worked over at High quite a bit. And of course, you would never know that because he just—they didn't list the companyists, you know, on those albums. They, yeah, they didn't even list his name on the record ever. Yeah. His real name is James Brown. But he didn't like using that. <laughs> they were thinking, you know, the Godfather of Soul, James Brown. But even though, even though James was originally known as Jimmy Brown, but absolutely, uh, James Brown, you got to change that name. There's a few cats. I just want to throw these names out to you. I remember when I interviewed Booker T. He talked about going to Third and Beale, some club, and uh, Mc, Jack McDuff was in town and. You know, the, the the output was so heavy from that organ that his pant legs were, were flapping in the wind. And, you know, so between... I just want you to talk about any of the... If you've got a chance to see any of these cats, Jack McDuff, Richard Groove Holmes. I love those guys. Jimmy Smith. I, I, I mean, did I, Jimmy Smith come to, the, to Memphis? I mean, these guys were like... They were beyond genius, and they were monster characters. And I just... You know, I mean, I know you weren't a soul jazz guy. You know, you're definitely a soul country, blue-eyed cat. But did you did you get a chance to ever see them in person, or and and just talk about their influence on you? They were a big influence on me, especially especially Jimmy Smith and brother Jack McDuff. Oh, yeah. Jack McDuff came to Memphis and recorded. He did an album. Uh, I know it. I don't. Tobacco Road, I think it's called. Uh, it's, it's like, uh, it's got, uh, some barbecue song. Oh yeah, that's right, dude. I got to look that up. That's exactly right. <laughs> A friend of mine played sax on that. Uh, Joe Arnold, I think, him. he was over at Stax for a while. Played with Otis Redding and, but, uh. Yeah, brother Jack McDuff was a big influence, and Jimmy Smith, and uh, but there was just nowhere really to play that kind of jazz stuff in Middle Tennessee, where I grew up in Tullahoma, Tennessee, about an hour from Nashville. Then we moved to Muscle Shoals, and then over to. Knoxville for a year or two with Russell trying to put the band together. Butch and Stick were down there too after 
Jesse Winchester. But uh, didn't get to hear. Yeah, it's so. I mean, I'm so naive because, like, well, just the idea that there would be these thriving jazz clubs. It's just the the thing is, man. I mean, your generation, and you're a little bit younger than some other cats, but you know, the truth is, like, you know, Wilton Felder from the Crusaders. uh, Yeah, badass baseball. Badass, dude. And dude, so when he was playing sax with the Nighthawks, which was the Jazz Crusaders before they they moved to the West Coast, Hubert Laws and uh, Wilton was like he would. They would be on tour with you know Bobby Blue Bland or BB King. I mean, those blues guys could play jazz tunes. They could play Cherokee. I mean, they could really play jazz. So, like, in some ways, while there wasn't like your like you know jazz, you know like a pure pure jazz club the blues and the jazz were just so alongside each other at that time it just somehow i feel like it just kind of rubbed off on you through osmosis you know yeah i loved it you know being a hammond player back in the 60s and early 70s you know people had mentioned you know you I don't know, you got to get the new jimmy mcgriff record yeah you get the new uh, yeah. uh Bill, 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 Cubs, Bill Doggett, Smith, Bill Doggett, you know, Earl Bostic. Yeah. had a bunch of great ones. Absolutely. And um, just a ton of them. Uh, while Bill Davis was starting off, uh, Jimmy Smith probably had the, had the most going on in the, in the Hammond world with his records and such a monster player too. Oh my, I mean, this is so, but I just want to, I want to get this on the right. Billy Earhart, did you ever, when you had your, you know, um, <clears throat> Spinette, did, were you playing some of like, just like, you know, American songbook tunes? Would you say you ever actually, even before you were maybe professional, did you ever like play kind of jazz music to a degree? Not really. Yeah, that's you know, fine. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, I did uh, after a couple of years in the Aces, and you you know you all of a sudden you're making a little money, and yeah, I'm gonna go buy about fifteen or twenty albums. <laughs> we got a week or two off. You go to the Pop Tunes in Memphis and load up on them. And that's what I would get. I love it. You were getting Jimmy McGriff, Jack McDuff. Jimmy Smith, Groove Holmes, all that kind of stuff to try to swipe some licks, get some just feeling and just learning um, just cool old organ deals, you know. I love it. I freaking love it. And, uh, of course, Booker T., and uh, I had a bunch of friends. Uh, I hung with Duck Don a bunch in Memphis. Oh my! Oh, dude, that is warming my heart, dude. The man. I, I'm sorry, dude. This is. Please tell me about Duck, dude. The guy is just so freaking badass. Just a great guy. Funny as hell. He, <laughs> when, uh, 
when they weren't doing anything at stacks too much. Mm. Uh, he, you know, he was in kind of like the house band over at Stacks, but when they they weren't cutting uh, that much in the, I want to say the early '80s, some, but it slowed down. He would play with his friend of mine, Randy Haspel, in Memphis, and uh, that's where I got to hang with him. We go go to some club in Memphis. Poplar Lounge or somewhere and fucking Duck Dunn. Damn. Wait, hold on. And your wait, your your friend was playing uh, piano or like what was what was the it was a duo? No, he had a band. He had a band. Boy. Yeah, had a had a band and uh, he was playing uh, R and B and rock and roll. You know from the. 60s. He also was a songwriter. He wrote, I had a couple of cuts on George Jones. and He actually was one of the the uh, last artists to cut on Sun. Wow. Before Sam Phillips sold Sun Records to Shelby Singleton. And uh, Randy Haspel and had a little, uh, you know, a little forty-five on on Sun Records. That was that was cool. That was uh, before I knew him, but it was uh, it was cool to go down there and just see Doug Dunn playing bass, man. I dude, mean, that must have just been ridiculous, dude. <laughs> when uh, when Booker T's drummer got murdered, Al Jackson, a friend of mine came in and took his place. Willie Hall is a hell of a drummer. Dude, I dude, I'm going to send you my dude, you're you're you're, you're warming. I got to send you my interview with Willie. We had a ball. Willie Hall, unbelievable the baddest drummer, dude. Yeah, he's killer and you know he did the Blues Brothers and he did Isaac Hayes. He a did a lot time. of the well, no because the when the Barkays died and then the Marquis came in, that Willie became the house drummer there after that band died in the car wreck. Or in the, in the plane wreck, rather. Yeah, uh, they were back in Otis. That's right. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, so there's a bunch of good players in Memphis and Nashville. And, I mean, they're just all over the, the country. And getting to hang with a bunch of them was special for me, just being, you know, 19 or 20 years old. Not much brains and just mainly kind of trying to maintain a buzz and find some women. You know. <laughs> Yo, man, you're doing a heck, you were doing a heck of a job. I mean, I want to go back to this. This is interesting. Your family moved to Muscle Shoals or the Aces, before you were the Aces, tried to get a record deal with Rick Hall there? No. Uh, this was in uh, 72 when I got out of high school. Right. And I was in a band from Nashville called uh, Annabelle. The singer named it after his grandmother. And we went down to Muscle Shoals and immediately got a a four-night-a-week job at the only nightclub around for 50 miles. That's because, dude, that's on. 
unbelievable. Because at the time, the only thing that I was aware of down there were the Swampers. I didn't even know there was a nightclub there. Well, it wasn't actually in the shoals. It was because you couldn't buy beer or sell beer or any liquor. It was a dry county, and, uh, yeah. That's right. A dry county. Yeah. So you had to go 13 miles north of Muscle Shoals right on the Tennessee line. They had a big, giant honky-tonk. You probably get five or six hundred in there. <laughs> and we played Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for about a year, year and a half. And Russell came down. A friend of ours, uh, Bill Yarborough, brought Russell down there to Muscle Shoals. And uh, he was, his plan was to take the drummer, me, the bass player, and the guitar player, and go to Knoxville and start a new band with Russell. Because hmm. the lead singer was wanting to do a bunch of top 40 stuff that we didn't want to do. Totally. We was wanting to do tie yellow ribbon around the old oak tree and just some uh, stuff. That yeah, we, I mean, that, that just bored you to death. No, I, I dig, I dig. Yeah, it just wasn't something we were going to do. Right. And uh, This is the Annabelle cat, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Tolly Lee. I Tal did a solo record with him. He's dead now, but... Hell of a singer. He was more of a like a Greg Allman type vocalist, you know, pretty soulful. Oh, but uh, what was his first name? Tolly. Tolly. T o l l i e. Oh, your This is so you did a. But basically, he wanted to do top forty, and you were like, "That ain't gonna happen." So then, you and Russell kind of put. I mean, Stick wasn't in the picture at this point. Dick had played with Russell and uh, the drummer Butch McDade, who passed away in 98. He was uh, original Aces drummer. Uh, right. Unbelievable drummer. Fatback. Fatback? Fatback in Knoxville, Tennessee. Oh. And they were playing little bars and had some original stuff and kind of playing greasy R&B and blues and it's great it's freaking great stuff. oh my god and then and then uh the drummer Butch and Stick Davis got a call to come to Montreal and join Jesse Winchester's band wow. so they went up there for a year and that's when I went to Knoxville and hooked up with Russell uh and then uh, Stick and Butch did a Jesse Winchester album, uh, Learn to Love It. And he cut Third Rate Romance with Butch singing. No, he didn't. And he did The End Is Not In Sight that we won a Grammy for. But... Uh, oh, 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 you just kind of went to Never Everland on me. Yeah, before The Aces... Yeah. Butch and Stick went to hook up with Winchester. In yeah, camp. they played with him for about a year, mainly in Montreal. They did a couple little 
West Coast tours and played Toronto some, and but mainly in Montreal. But that third, like those tunes, the end is not the end. Not, those tunes, though, they were already sort of in the ether. How did he even get hip to those tunes? They uh, they they cut the record, and then right before it came out, uh, they had some kind of disagreement over the money, and Butch and Stick said, "Well, we quit. We're going back to." Knoxville, and me and Russell were sitting there waiting on them, and that's when we put the Rhythm Aces together, and uh, went to went to Memphis. We cut about uh, five or six songs, and then we found out what the deal was that if we if we would move to Memphis. We w- we could record at Sam Phillips Recording Studio any time they didn't have anything going on, mm. and the guitar player uh, Bird Burton, that was also the Aces producer for the first three or four albums, he uh, he said, "If you guys can come down here, we'll we'll cut a good album or two's worth of material," and see what happens you know maybe we can get Sam's son to get us a deal and he did we we were just out of the blue he he pulled it off and we had one crew guy to drive a truck and set up the stage wow and uh one roadie one dude we, we were like the <laughs> A national opening act at that point. Third Rate Romance was on every radio station and playing all the time. And so it was easy to book. Like we opened for Fleetwood Mac. We did Loggins and Messina. Willie and Waylon. We did a whole year with Jimmy Buffett. They all had big giant crowds. I mean... Hat. Like huge, like state, like like coliseums, right? Like stadiums. Yeah, huge, big coliseums, and we just had to go out there and do forty minutes. But we killed them. It, it went over great, and uh, so we kept on getting a lot of dates, and ended up. Uh, uh, we did the long run tour with the Eagles. We did uh, another Jimmy Buffett tour '76. We were both on the same label on ABC Records. Absolutely. But uh, well, I want to go back for a second. This is really important. I'm third rate. This is what it says here on Wikipedia for what it's worth. Third rate romance is a song written by Russell Smith. First recorded in Montreal by in 1974 by Jesse Winchester and his band, The Rhythm Aces, assist, yeah. assisted by Smith. It became a hit the following year by the newly reformed Amazing Rhythm Aces on its 1975 album Stacked Deck. So, and that's when it went to it, number 11 on the country, single charts, 14 on Billboard, 
number one in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, Jesse didn't want to want to put that out as a single because Butch was singing it. Jesse just said, "Now yeah, let's do that third grade romance song because he had played him a rough copy of it, you know, and uh, he let Butch sing it on Jesse's album. That's incredible. And that album came out. That was there. That was pressed and available to the public. Yeah, it came out, and, and we had already moved to Memphis, and uh, and seventy four, and we're working on the first album, you know. And uh, Jesse was just by himself at that point. He never did get another band. He just kind of did it by himself, but. He was such a great writer. I was, uh, I was amazed that he would do anybody else's material, but he really loved that song and the uh, "End Is Not In Sight." The one thing about that was uh, they got great a great guitar player to play on that Jesse Winchester "Learn to Love It" album. Uh, Amos Garrett. My dear friend, another dear friend. He's in my fifth book that's about my interview with him. I cannot believe Amos played on that record. Yeah, he played on an original third-rate romance, and uh, it is not signed, too. But not wow. our version. But, uh, <laughs> so, and it says, new, it says the newly reformed Amazing Rhythm Aces. Was that band in existence before Billy Earhart uh, came into the scene. No, when when they came down from Canada and hooked back up with Russell, who they they had played with for a few years uh, before I came into the scene. Then uh, uh, they, they were called the Rhythm Ace. I mean, I'm just trying to because it says like they were Jesse yeah. Winchester and the Rhythm. It was like a little those uh, rhythm ace machines that would accompany an organ player or something. It's like got a little drum beat. Oh, I love this, dude. I, I oh, that is. <laughs> and we were going to just be the rhythm aces, and they said, "Well, it's already copyrighted." It was Bobby Moore and the rhythm aces, and they had searching, searching for my baby in the 60s. Right. But they had it copyrighted. So we just kind of came up with the amazing rhythm aces. That one passed the... That passed muster. I I mean, dude, it is so freaking amazing. I mean, can you talk a little bit about just sort of moving into the modern era? I'm not saying that you were somebody that would stretch out and take as many bars as you wanted, but where do you stand in terms of your improvisational chops? I mean, did you ever, was that something that, um, you know, cause I mean, people can tell a story in, in one minute uh, of a solo, but I'm just curious about how you've, if, if it's, if you put it on yourself over the years to become a better instrumental improvisational player. Yeah, I'm, you know, I've been working on that for over 50 years. You know. <laughs> I dig, man. 66 was my first dig, you know, but 
page. You just try to, it's a never ending process of learning, you know, when to not play and, you know, the different grooves and playing major key or minor key or mixing it up and just learning how to do it. And then you got to kind of know how to play in every key. Um, that's right. So, I mean, that's kind of the thing. I mean, Bert, Charlie Parker would put on the radio and a country western station, and he'd learn to play the song in every key. You know, your ears become huge. How, where do you think your ears grew the most on the bandstand? To me, like, one of the fascinating things about your early career, the early Booker T and the MGs, when I interviewed Cropper, I mean... Past the first couple of rows, most people couldn't really even hear the music. The PA systems were so antiquated. Um, it was, and I just can imagine the onstage sound, sometimes you maybe weren't necessarily able, I mean, Stick wasn't playing an upright bass, you weren't playing acoustic music, but sometimes you probably had to really listen, I mean, you had to listen hard, your generation, and I just wonder where you think your ears looking back on it grew the most on the bandstand. Uh, Stick was playing an upright bass on some things. He was? Yeah. Oh, wait, I mean, you mean on the record or live? On the record and live. That is so freaking class. You're telling me... He, so, but he wasn't always... They're, they're, the, the, that that acoustic bass wasn't always... Uh, didn't have an amp, right? He had... Uh, he had a real nice pickup put on it where he could plug it into his amp. He had that uh, he had that acoustic bass before he had an electric bass. I'm loving this so much, dude. I am loving this, dude. So you were playing and you were on a, you were playing acoustic piano, or were you already playing organ? I mainly played organ. Occasionally, I played a little piano. James mainly played the piano. Uh, I played on a, about three, three or four different songs. I played piano on Third Eight Romance, uh, Love and Happiness. Um, Amazing Grace used to be her favorite song, but mainly organ. And um, what's amazing I, is that I mean, I mean the what the the fact that it's like the I'm trying to envision Stick playing an acoustic, an upright bass fiddle at a at a opening for Jimmy Buffett at a Coliseum. I mean, that would not be easy to generate sonically. You know, I mean, it's amazing that he was able to do that. Yeah, if you got a really nice pickup, you know several hundred dollars for a little pickup mounted, you know, down there where they put it. And uh, I just said it great. So deep and fat, you know, it's like uh, he's got uh, upright bass chops too. So he plays electric bass like that. Like, uh, 
like a jazz guy, you know, Charles Mingus or somebody. He so he he has the upright chops of a jazz player. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. He never went to New York and tried to make it as a as a jazz bassist. But that to me is so. Unbelievable! I just assumed he was always on Fender bass. I, that to me is mine. Yeah, he had a nice '62 Fender Jazz bass and a Precision, I think, from '65 or something. He had a couple of, then he had a really uh, beautiful K upright bass. Had slouch hat written on it when he bought it. It was on there, I guess. Some guy in the 40s used to use it. He was from uh, Indiana. Wow. Evansville, Indiana. And uh, got that first before he got an electric fender. You know, Billy, uh, I want to do... We just burned through an hour here. I want to do set two as soon as possible because we're just getting cooking. But my final question in set one is did you cross paths with uh, the great drummer Levon Helm? A couple of times. Uh, just, just not really getting to hang out, but... I, I guess maybe the better question is, yeah, the, the, it's more like the, the touring circuit that you were on, not locally when you would open for the big bands, but, like, who would you get teamed up with or on a bill, per se? Like, I mean, maybe not the band, but, like, if you were doing stuff, what was, like, the craziest? Because, I mean, back then, I mean, it wasn't out of the question that, like, the Amazing Rhythm Aces potentially would open for, like, Grand Funk Railroad or Herbie Hancock would open for Iron Butterfly. Yeah, we did a bunch of weird things. Like that. We, <laughs> we opened for Rick Wakeman. One oh, time. I love this, dude. We opened for Brenda Lee, the country gal. Sure, you know? sure, yeah. Uh, we did a bunch of dates with Freddie Fender, a uh, ton of them with Waylon and Willie and. I told you the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, and but uh, Would we you... had some oddball Kansas one time we opened. Wow! But that this is in the mid seventies, late seventies, maybe. Absolutely no, I mean because I'm just wondering also like. Uh, were you primarily a regional touring band, or did you go to places like San Francisco and New York as well? We went to every state. We played all 50. Wow. Uh, yeah, we'd go to New York. We played the Troubadour in L.A. We, you know, we That's right. San Francisco. Where would you play in San Fran? Where would you play? We played uh, the boarding house. Oh my God, this is great! Uh, this we is played the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. Absolutely, makes all the sense in the world. It's so uh, beautiful, man. That's just so beautiful. I mean, you were not. No one was gonna. You were no hippie band. That's for sure. You know, it was not a skiffle band. But it's so beautiful that you guys were able to 
not just make pop hits, but then just, I don't know, it's just, it was a magical era. You feel, you feel, uh, you feel blessed in your life, Billy? Oh, very much so, very much so. And then we had, uh, Russell had a little thing where he was writing for publishing companies and he had a little, uh, with one of the Eagle guys, Bernie Ladden, and a couple other guys, they had run C and W, and they did kind of a, a soul bluegrass thing. It was kind of a comedy record, right? Almost. But uh, while Russell was doing that, I fell into a Bocephus Hank Williams Jr. twenty-one years worth of touring with him all over the world too well let's let why don't we just pick up set two with hank williams all right all right does that sound good that sounds good i really it's so beautiful to talk to you man it's such an honor to connect with you and i will get uh this set up uh, later tonight and then we'll plan to do set two uh if not this week next week sounds good man i i, I appreciate you uh, hey, and I I'll, I'll, you asking, man. Hey, uh, man, no, dude, listen, man, you're one of the cats, and let me tell you, I'm going to send you the, the Russell Smith and Willie Hall interviews. I've been on this journey for 12 years, man, so to connect with you is really the highest honor, brother. We'll do it again. All right. All right, baby. Be cool, man. Much love. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, man. I right. appreciate it. Yeah, be cool, baby. You too. Bye.